Welcome to the Cherry Hills Church Podcast. To help us set the tone for the year ahead, we're in a five-week teaching series on the spiritual practice of simplicity. A simple life may feel like loss, but is actually great gain. Thanks for joining us as we learn the way of Jesus together. Good morning, church family. It is good to be with you. If we've not met, my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm one of the worship leaders. And it's typically my privilege to be helping to lead uh, the music. But every once in a while, I get to open up the Word of God. Love when I get to do that and excited to jump in. So grab a Bible if you brought one with you. You can open up to the book of Luke. And we'll be in chapter 6 to start. And then we're going to be hopping around a bit. A lot of the scripture will be up on the screen. We'll be in the book of Mark and the book of James as well. We're going to start in Luke chapter 6 with verse 43. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. You can grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible, take that with you. We'd love for that to be yours uh, as a gift from us. So uh, if you're new and haven't been here for a while, today we are concluding our series in the practice of simplicity. And we have been uh, kind of looking at the practices of Jesus. Sometimes they're called the spiritual disciplines. But we've been looking at these over the course of several years. We've looked at practices like fasting and prayer and Sabbath and hearing God. And the reason that we have been doing this is because we say a lot around here that we want to keep learning how to give ourselves fully to the way of Jesus. Like, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. We want to step into the very things that he stepped into. You know what I'm saying? Like, we want to, if you're following along in the notes, orient our lives around his way. We want to orient our lives around the way of Jesus. Bear his image in the world. Learn from him, how to do the things he did for the sake of others. So we've been doing that now for several weeks with the practice of simplicity, and here is what we've been learning. If you're following along, we've been learning that while simplicity feels like loss, and isn't that true? Like in our culture of more, 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 while simplicity feels like loss, it's actually great gain. It's actually great gain. We began our series back on January 7th, where we talked about the myth of more. And then on January 14th, we talked about simplicity of heart. On January 21st, simplifying digital noise. Then last week, the simplicity of stuff. And if you missed any of those, you weren't here, you can go to our website, our podcast. You can listen to those there. But today, we're talking about simplicity of speech. Simplicity of speech. What's simplicity of speech? Simplicity of speech, just like any of the others that we've walked through, is a way of existing in the world. It's a way of existing in the world. I want to show you what I mean real quick. If you look at the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, about a third of them have to do pretty directly with our speech. Like Exodus 27 You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. Speech. Or Exodus 20.12, honor your father and mother. Hard to do this without considering speech. 
or Exodus 20:16, you shall not give false testimony, right? In layman's terms, like don't lie, speak the truth. And if you follow this thread all the way through scripture into the New Testament, you start to see passages like James 1:19. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. See, simplicity of speech is a way of existing in the world. That means being slower to speak, talking less. Now, pause button real quick here, all right? Because I can already see the introverts in the room like salivating. It's like, I picked the best day to be in church, and I hope my extroverted friend or spouse is listening up right now. Right? So I just want to say this. Simplicity of speech is not about talking never. Okay? It's not about talking never. You can't just go hole up somewhere, never say another word to anyone ever again. Unless, of course, you're considering being a monk and you want to live in a monastery. And if that's the case, then I've got some questions about why you're here and how we can direct you to the path you feel called to. Right? But for those of us in the room... It's not about talking never. It's about talking less as a means to talking more like Jesus. Yeah. Simplicity of speech is about talking less as a means to talking more like Jesus. Now, for some of us, if we're like highly, highly, highly pegged out on the introvert side, maybe sometimes it's going to be talking more, to talk more like Jesus. But for most of us, talking less. We get the idea. Okay. Now, before we jump in, one more thing we got to do. We got to take a little speech self-evaluation. Everybody for self-evaluation? It's a good thing. Yeah, it's good to self-evaluate, especially in church. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one minute, write down the top two words that those who know you best would use to describe your speech. Ready? Go. All right. Doesn't have to be perfect. Maybe you need to ask your neighbor. Don't lie. (laughs) All right. We getting there? Two words about there. Okay, you've written them down. I love it. Well done. I want you to look at the words, and I want to ask you this question. What do you think, if anything, those two words you wrote down reveals about your heart? What do you think those two words you wrote down reveals about your heart? Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 43. It says... No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, but each tree is recognized by its own fruit. Jesus is a master at this stuff. He's always using illustrations, especially with like trees and nature. We've got this beautiful maple tree in our backyard, and in the fall, man, 
It like blazes gold and yellow. And I know it's a maple tree because it gives us maple leaves, right? Now, if that maple tree started producing pine needles and pine cones and it didn't blaze golden orange in the fall anymore, I'd be bummed out. I'd be kind of angry. Like I would be upset, frankly. Back to the text here. Why would I be upset? Because, because people don't pick figs from thorn bushes. They don't pick grapes from briars. And they don't pick pine cones from maple trees. Now, read with me off your message notes or up here on the screen. You ready? All together. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart. And an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Mm. You know, we've been talking about storing stuff up quite a bit in this series, haven't we? And we all store stuff up. And we got stuff stored up in our basement, stored up in our garage, stored up in our drawers. Some of us got stuff stored in our cars, open up the glove box. Have you ever considered what's stored in your heart? What do you have stored up in your heart? Two times the phrase stored up is used in this verse. And I just wonder what you've been tucking away in your heart, hanging on to. Is it cluttered in there in your heart? And if you're like me, when I first thought about this, I'm like, I don't know, I can't see in there, you know? And it's almost like Jesus says back, it's like, oh yeah, you can see in there. You know what's going on in your heart? Just pay attention to what comes out. Of your mouth. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of, and it just kind of happens, doesn't it? It just kind of happens. And often we wish we had more control of this, but we don't. We're like, ah. So we come up with phrases like, yeah, he really put his foot in his mouth, didn't he? He must not know that once the toothpaste comes out of the tube, there's no putting it back in. Who of us has not experienced this? It's like this thing has a mind of its own. I have no control. And scripture names this. And this is what I love. At least one of the things about scripture, right? Is it doesn't ever leave me just like on an island wondering, am I the only one that experiences this? It just names the human condition. James, the brother of Jesus. James 3, verse 5. Like, and he had a thing with words in the tongue, didn't he? Here's what he says. He says, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Whoa. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But here it is. No human being can tame the tongue. And we're like, yeah, I feel that. Like on my worst days, I am living that. 
Verse 8, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. And if it should not be, James, brother of Jesus, then this begs a question. Is there a practice? Is there a practice? A practice of Jesus, since we want to give ourselves fully to him and his way around here, right? Is there a practice that he walked in that can act as a trellis or a yoke or a training ground for helping us tame the tongue? And the answer is yes. Yes, and we want to learn from Jesus today just a bit how to walk in this practice. Now, according to Jesus, from what we just read, if we want to tame the tongue, we've got to start with? We've got to start with? Nice. You guys are good. I love it. You've got to start with the heart. If you're following along in your notes, we want to learn how to orient our words around the heart of Jesus. We want to learn how to orient our words around the heart of Jesus. Author and theologian and uh, kind of a spiritual practices nerd. I think you'd actually like that phrase. Takes one to know one sort of thing. Richard Foster has written some phenomenal stuff on simplicity. A whole book, in fact, that I would highly recommend. And he says this about simplicity. He says, simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. If you're following along, simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. I love that. That's exactly it. We want to orient our words around the heart of Jesus. So here is the plan. Let's spend the rest of the time that we have just observing Jesus, just observing him. Not everything. We'd be here all day, right? But just a few things. How he talks, how he doesn't talk. When he speaks, when he's silent. Let's just see what we can learn about his heart by considering his words and how that might apply to us. Yeah? Guys good? Good with that? You don't really have a choice. We're moving forward. Okay? So let's begin just by considering for a moment the superiority and the brilliance of Jesus' words. The superiority and the brilliance of his speech. I mean, he had the uncanny ability to say the right word at the right time, in the right way, to the woman at the well and the paralyzed man at the poolside, to Nicodemus in the dead of night and the leper in the bright of day. To his enemies and to his friends alike, using parables and prose, invitation and challenge, brevity and beauty. I mean, we have from Jesus some of the most memorable and quotable lines in all of ancient history across the breadth of ancient literature. We could put his words against all that have been recorded in history, and he's a professional athlete. or elementary students sitting at his feet. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Those in the church, outside of the church, maybe know Jesus, don't know Jesus. They know the Lord's Prayer. 57 words in its original language. Our Father who art in heaven, right? Everybody knows that. 
57 words, and yet we return to it again and again, all the way to this day, because we'll never reach the depth of that well. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, 2,000 words. To give you a reference point, I'm quickly nearing 1,700. (laughs) If your max is 2,000, you can go ahead and take an exit, right? I'm not going to make that. (laughs) 2,000 words, concise and to the point yet unmatched in its ability to communicate. The Beatitudes alone, stunning. Just read them in Matthew 5, later on today, up up to Jesus' very last breath on the cross. He's still speaking. Honestly, compassionately, concisely, clearly, to his mother about her care, to his captors, about his physical thirst, to his friends about a favor. John, would you take care of my mom? To his father about his physical pain. Why have you forsaken me? To the criminals on either side who are arguing over the top of him in the middle of one of the most terrifying Ways to die, ever. And is he, what is he saying to them? He's like, hey, knock it off. Would you guys knock it off? Quit it. No, he's inviting them into paradise. If they just believe. It's mind-blowing. Mark, chapter 12, verse 13. It says that the Pharisees and the Herodians We're trying to catch Jesus in his words. They're trying to catch him in his words. Like everywhere he went, all the time, he's got very important, smart people trying to constantly trip him up. And he is still putting on a clinic when it comes to how to use words. And he had it a little harder than us, didn't he? (laughs) Like he had it harder than us, some might say. Goes on. It says they came to him and they said, and they don't care, they're insincere, right? But here's what they say. They say, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then they think, we've got him. We've got him. We're asking this question. We've got him. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Seven words. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Here's Jesus planted in a culture where people are using their words to bite and claw and judge and curse and trap and trick one another, planted in a culture where words frankly don't mean much a lot of the time because they're empty of love, short on compassion, insincere. Does that feel familiar to anybody? But Jesus, man, he is just speaking life into his surroundings, speaking life. And people are amazed. If you're following along in the notes, Jesus shows us 
Simplicity of speech is about how to talk. And man, does Jesus talk. It's about how to talk. But it wasn't just the way that he talked that amazed people. It was just as much the way that he didn't talk. Look at Mark 15, starting in verse 2. It says, They bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate looked right at him, and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? At Jesus' silence, amazed at his refusal to say a word when it seemed to all else like a word was wanting, his insistence on keeping quiet. And if you're following along, Jesus shows us simplicity of speech is about how not to talk. Jesus shows us simplicity of speech is about how not to talk. In her book, entitled, entitled Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking, Susan Cain asks a profound question. What can quiet do that we don't give it credit for? What can silence bring about that a word spoken would like just ruin These are the kind of questions that I just wouldn't stop to ask myself. I need people that are just smarter, wiser than I to ask them for me. After all, I'm a man of unclean lips, yeah? And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, Isaiah 6. And I'm planted, as Cain writes in her book, in one of the most extroverted nations in the world. I'm caught up in a value system that places having a personality equal to or above having character. I'm planted by God in a culture where the ideal personality is gregarious, alpha, and comfortable in the spotlight. I'm planted in a household where the noise level in my five-member family at any given moment can be considered exhibit A, that we are embracing the extroversion. Don't leave me here. Anybody? (laughs) And I'll be the first to admit I'm often the chief contributor. But what can silence do? that I don't give it credit for. Jesus knelt next to the woman caught in adultery and he drew in the sand. He gave no opinion when his cousin John was thrown in prison. He rallied no uproar when he was betrayed and arrested. And during the last week of his life, he was tossed back and forth between two powerful men. Caiaphas was the high priest of the temple Pilate, the governor of Judea, both presumably had the authority, the leverage, the influence to change outcomes in a matter of minutes with a snap of a finger. And yet, what's mind-blowing to me is that it's actually the work of quiet that is doing the heavy lifting here. It's the practice of silence that was working powerfully behind the scenes. It's the ability to hold one's tongue, refuse to react, and walk in self-restraint that would change the world forever. Think about the noise level surrounding Jesus in that last week. Deafening. 
The crowds were screaming. The religious leaders were lying. His own disciples were trying to dissuade or worse, betray him. And you would think, you would think that the environment he inhabited in this moment would send him over the edge. Mentally, spiritually, physically, you would think that his inner life would mirror his surroundings. But no, friends, no. Because simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of, and Jesus' heart is gold, anchored to his Father, guided by, his, by the Spirit. And aren't we so apt to believe that our inner life is a result of our outer circumstances, right? But I just want to throw out there, what if the opposite is true? What if my environment's not the cause of my inner life, but the mere image of my inner life. Like what if Jesus was able to stand before Pilate and be silent, confronted with false accusation, ridicule, pain, stress, because his inner life was full of peace, shalom, absolutely unhurried, at rest, anchored in his father. What if he knew deep down that he didn't need to control outcomes with his words? He controlled outcomes with prayer. What if Caiaphas and Pilate actually experienced a surprising and profound peace within them that they had never before encountered anywhere as they nervously tried to convince him of their power? And what might happen? What might happen in a community, a workplace, a school, a nation? What might happen in a family if a body of people learned to give themselves to a practice like this? What would that look like? On Monday, January 15th, it's about two and a half weeks ago now, I spent what ended up being a pretty soul-filling, spirit-enriching two and a half hours with my wife, Lisa, and her grandma, Shirley. And it was the last two and a half hours that I would spend with her this side of eternity. She'd been moved to hospice the week before. She was 97. You know, it's in a room like that, isn't it, where we often learn that there's things that quiet can do that we don't give it credit for. When we're with someone we love, who's passed the ability to speak words in the final hours of life. So we attempted to let quiet do the heavy lifting, attempted just to be present, speak minimally. And grandma loved hymns, and so we sang several, and then there was this moment. It kind of surprised us because she was in and she was out. But with her eyes closed, she confidently and clearly And pretty loud, actually, too, began to sing a hymn that we were not familiar with. She just sang four words, four words, again and again and again. Jesus, Savior, pilot me. Jesus, Savior, pilot me. I don't know how many hymns that she knew. I'd guess 60, 70, 80. I don't, I don't know how much scripture she had hidden in her heart. But I do know this. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
doesn't it? And if you ask me to describe grandma's speech with two words, you know the ones that I'd pick? Jesus, Savior. There she was in her final hours of life, not complaining, not bitter, just like him, still speaking, teaching us a hymn, and revealing to us what was there in her heart, had been there in her heart since I'd met her, urging us, urging us to fill our hearts with the same thing. And you know what? She had reason for her heart to be full of other things. Her first husband made the decision to leave her 20 years into their marriage. She became a single mom, parenting five kids on her own. She remarried, navigating the ins and outs of knitting two different families together. Her life was not a walk in the park, but her heart was gold, anchored in the Father's love and guided by the Spirit of God. And she knew how to make each person she came into contact with feel special, seen, loved with the right word at the right time, in the right tone. And as I sat at her memorial service the following week, in the midst of a blended family, people from every walk of life, background, each of us with our own hang-ups, our own flaws, our own shortcomings that we brought into that room, you know what struck me most was how connected this hodgepodge group of people had become over the course of two decades plus, and how loved each of us felt by this incredible woman. That's simplicity of speech. She had a heart that was absolutely tethered to Jesus, and her words demonstrated it time and time again. And 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you were called, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. And I want to learn to follow in his steps, don't you? Like, I want to learn to give myself to his way. I want to see the fruit of knowing him, not just in the life to come, but in the land of the living, like right here, right now. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. I think it's only fair for me at this point in the message to let you know that I just crossed the threshold of 4,000 words. So in the spirit of beauty and brevity, I want to wrap up just by offering a few practical ideas. And the first thing that I want to say is this. The church, capital C, needs every personality type. The church needs every personality type, not just the extroverted and charismatic, but the introverted and introspective, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Jesus gives no favor to extroversion or introversion. He spent a large percentage of his time present to friends, family, strangers, over a bite to eat, at a party, involved in an amazing conversation. But he spent just as much time, so it seems, present to no one other than the spirit of God and his own inner thoughts on a mountaintop or in a solitary place. And if simplicity of speech is about how to talk and how to not talk, then what is the spirit of God asking of you? You can read a lot more about this in the practice guides. You can pick one of those up after the service. They're out there on the tables. Man, pick one up, get after it, dive in. But I just want to offer a few things here. Okay, first, if he's saying, 
talk. It's how you talk. But maybe consider just experimenting with offering a blessing. Offering a blessing. Those who know Jesus walk in a legacy of blessing others. Keep it brief, simple, encouraging, sincere. And I pray it would be like water in the desert to whoever you give it to. Like, I think it might be, like it has a possibility to be one of the best moments in that person's day, yeah? Just to lift them up. Or you might experiment with welcoming the stranger. Welcoming the stranger. Jesus had eyes to see others. He never met a stranger. And it's been said that everyone is interesting, but it's not up to them to show you. It's up to you to discover it. What might you discover this week from another by asking a fantastic question. Or maybe it's not so much about how you need to simply talk. Maybe it's about how you need to simply not talk. (laughs) Yeah? Maybe it's practicing situational silence. Maybe you need to go a week practicing holding the tongue. Like, what if you didn't give your opinion or your advice or have the last word in a conversation unless you were asked this week? What would it look like for you to do all of that in both the physical world and the digital world? Or what would it look like for you to experiment with saying it short? Saying it short. If I could recommend one book on simplicity at the end of this series, I'd tell you to read Jan Johnson's Abundant Simplicity. It's phenomenal. And in this book, she tells the story in one of her chapters about learning to use brevity. She just learned, get this, she just learned that teenagers hear 10% of what their parents actually say. Makes a lot of sense to a lot of things for me now. I'm starting to understand. 10%, right? So you know what she did? She decided to start saying 10% of what she normally said. And in one particular tense moment, she had to deliver bad news to her then teenage daughter. She walked in. She made no facial expressions. She kept her hands at her side instead of putting them on her hips. And she clearly and concisely delivered the news, kissed her on the forehead, and left the room. And then she said, you can't imagine how hard it was. (laughs) And that's true, isn't it? That's true. It's hard for any of us. For any and all of us, child, parent, teacher, student, coach, player, I mean, how often is my wordiness just an attempt to impress others, just an attempt to control what I was never meant to control in the first place? Like, how often do I tell half-truths, gossip, vent, because of my own insecurity, my own fear, my own shortcomings? And how can I start to see, how can we start to see what comes out of our mouth as a signpost? to the state of our heart as a gift of immediate access to whether we're at peace, filled with shalom, or not at peace, whether we're anchored to our Father, led by the Spirit. Now, it occurs to me, as we prepare for communion here, that oftentimes, in a practices series, we just kind of start to get like the disciples where we go, well, who then can be saved? <laughs> you know, and when they say that to them, they're like, who can be saved, Jesus, if this is the case? Like, I am not crushing it here. It's just not working out for me. And I, 
I think what Jesus says back is, that's right. Yeah. Apart from me and my spirit, no one can be saved. But we get illustration after illustration of individuals who screw up and then recognize it and recover. And I love looking at Peter right now. Man, did that guy put his foot in his mouth? (laughs) For all history, it's recorded, right? But it was at a meal. It was at a meal. And we're about to walk into one right now where Jesus confronted Peter and restored him, enabled him to recognize and to recover and to step into the calling that God had for him. So remember James 1.9 that says everyone should be slow to speak and quick to listen. And I want to give us just a minute of silence right now. What is the Spirit of God saying to you? Is he talking to you about how to talk? Is he talking to you about how not to talk? Take a moment right now just to be slow to speak and to listen to what he wants to say and maybe consider jotting something down if it comes to you in preparation for the meal we're about to take. Father God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed by things that we've done and by things that we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole hearts and we've not loved others as ourselves. Restore to us, Lord, the gift of your presence. Wash us in your mercy. Forgive us. We're here. We're open. Open. We're willing. And we believe that you, you're the best choice that we can make. (laughs) We receive your mercy this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.